good as anyone on the lake. But was, what was really great about him was that he loved to teach others, like kids on the lake who didn't have access to a boat. And so I would find myself in the water kind of wading over toward his property, hoping as a little kid that I might be one of the kids he'd offer to take skiing. Which one weekend morning he did along with several other kids that were around. He said, Deed, do you want to try skiing? Well, I was far too young to ski at that point in time. Too small, too weak, couldn't hold the skis up. So I said, yeah, but I don't, I don't think I can. He said, you can go with me. And so he had a friend that was driving his boat, and Bud had these absolutely enormous planks of wood called skis underneath his feet. They were wide, they were long, they were huge. And he positioned himself right in front of me. And of course, I had my life jacket on, and it was oil around my neck, so I could hardly talk as the water just pushed it up because it was too big for me, but it just kept me afloat. And Bud said, now hang on to my wrist here and my wrist here and rest your arms on my forearms. I didn't have skis on. I was just in Bud's arms when he yelled, hit it. And if you've never skied, that's like the moment of truth. You have to be ready to go. And the boat powered up and I know I just got this huge gasp of water because he didn't give me all of the instructions about what was going to happen next. But because these skis were so large, we popped out of the water so quickly. And I'm dangling in the air on Bud's arms because my feet didn't reach the skis. He leaned down and he said, now your feet can touch my skis down here. He's whispering in my ear. It was exhilarating. It was amazing. We made one big circle, came around, Bud let go of the rope, held me, and we settled down into the water. And I think I yelled, I'm a skier! It was just like the greatest. And forever will be a skier from that moment on. Um, a few years passed, and Bud asked if I wanted to really learn how to ski really learn how to ski. I said yes. It was another one of those weekends during the summer, and, and he had a neighbor of his who also had a nice boat, and Bud got behind the boat with me. The life jacket was still far too large. I had these skis that my ankles couldn't quite control. They just flip, crossed, go down, back and forth. And he kept telling me, are you ready? I don't know. And he'd say, no, you're not. You've got to get those skis straight. And I just hardly had enough strength to hold them steady. And it was like as they were in the crossing pattern coming back that Bud just yelled out, hit it, you know, hoping that it was at just the right time. And it was the right time, except I was so lightweight that I popped right up out of the water, right over the skis, and went headfirst into the water on the other side of the skis. And the skis popped off my feet, but it hadn't made it clear that once you fall, there's no hope of getting back up. So I held onto the rope with all my might, 
thinking somehow like I'd hydroplane and then I could, you know, just kind of barefoot it or something. I'm not sure. The reason I remember this so vividly is because the water was passing over me so fast that it pulled my eyelids down and I could see the stones and the seaweed and the clams as they were just high volume speed going right underneath me and I'm holding on. Finally let go, coughed all the water out of my lungs. I don't think I made it up that time. I was not yet a skier. It was a sad day. But I kept working at it. I kept working at it. Bud helped me. My parents helped me. Friends helped me. As time passed, I began to learn things. Things that were originally so frightening all of a sudden took on a different kind of nature to them. I had to learn the rules of keep the ski tips out when you're getting started. I had to learn the rules of bending my knees. I had to learn the rules of how to pull back on the rope, not just let it pull you. I had to learn what that felt like. I learned that the wake, once such a terrifying thing that seemed like this mountain that one leg went down and the other one stayed on top of and caused me to fall, all of a sudden as I got used to the dynamics, even though I wouldn't have called it physics, but the physics of what was happening, this wake became more of a jump than something to fear. I found myself no longer panicked about leaning, but found myself wanting to lean on purpose. Dropping a ski, getting up on a ski, putting up a spray. There was this amazing transition that happened where everything that was kind of uncertain, unsettling, Difficult, impossible, became doable, then manageable. And then what was really interesting was all of the rules started to fade into the background. I was so panicked early on, but so wanting to do this. I remember very clearly singing a song thinking it was in part what was keeping me up. It was an old caravan song as I'm holding the rope, panicked, going, He's able, he's able, I know God's able. Singing it all the way around, trying to keep myself up. But eventually, all of those rules, it's like they became secondary. As I started trying things that weren't really in the rule book, no longer fearful of falling, empowered to tell the driver the exact speed that I wanted. Knowing when I was done, I was done. Realizing when I felt like the choppy waves were more than I wanted to fight or that the circumstances weren't the time that I wanted to do what it was that I might often do. All of the sudden, the freedom and the joy of this activity kicked in in ways I never anticipated because all of the rules faded into the background. We're looking at a passage in Galatians. You heard it read. It's Galatians chapter 5. Paul, in writing this, does a really interesting thing. It's a great thing. I should do it more often. 
At the very beginning of the letter, he explains why he's writing the letter. And then he says all that he described at the beginning. And at the end, in his conclusion, he says what it was that he tried to accomplish. It's a great technique. You start off by explaining what you're going to do. You do it, and then you tell people what it was that you intended to do. He starts off in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7. He says, it seems to me that you are exchanging the gospel that was given to you for something that is no gospel at all. What are you doing? And then he proceeds to explain what they're doing and how it's not the gospel. And then at the end in chapter 6, verse 15, he says, I want you to understand that returning to this practice of circumcision, attempting to be Jewish in your faith, is not the message of the gospel, and you're giving up the very thing that invites you into a place of freedom. In between, he describes so many things and how it's taken place. He tells quite a bit about his own journey. In fact, it's one of the best letters to look at some of the life of Paul. We know that he was a persecutor of those who were part of the way, the followers of Christ. He was a a faithful, well-educated Jewish person and was determined to stamp out this sect and prove them wrong. Jesus met him on the road to Emmaus and in this journey that he was on, his life was completely transformed. But then quite a few years pass, as Paul describes. He goes to Syria, he goes to Arabia, he goes to Damascus. There's a span of close to 20 years from the time that Jesus transformed his life until much of his ministry that we know of takes place. He was learning, he was growing. He came back and met with Peter. Peter and the other disciples were primarily focusing their ministry to a great extent on the Jewish community and others who were influenced by that Jewish community. Paul felt very clearly called to the Gentiles and gave his life to that work. He meets with Peter. They compare notes. He also meets with some of the others. And it's clear that he is endorsed in his ministry to share the good news and to establish works among the Gentiles. So he writes this letter to the churches in Galatia called the letter to the Galatians. I don't know if I'm going to do a real good job of describing geographically where this area is, But if you can picture to the far eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea is Israel and Jerusalem, kind of the center for so much of what's taken place in all of Scripture. If you go across the top of the Mediterranean Sea to where Greece is, and most of you will remember that Greece is about half to two-thirds of the way to the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea, Halfway between Israel and Greece, across this top, is where the area of Galatia is. It covers a span from the southern shores of the Black Sea to the northern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. 
It's an area that Paul visited on all three of his missionary journeys. And so he has a real vested interest in this area. And he sends this letter to them to speak about what they do with the freedom that is theirs. Freedom is an interesting thing. I'm I'm convinced that with freedom comes power. In this letter, Paul talks about Abraham, the history of the patriarchs and the Jewish people, and their movement into slavery. God comes to Abraham and gives a promise to Abraham. Abraham, you will have so many descendants, you won't even be able to count them, Abraham. And through your descendants, all nations will be blessed. This is the promise. Before too many generations have passed, the descendants of Abraham become enslaved in Egypt. Four generations, they're in slavery. When they come out of slavery and Moses leads them to the mountain of God, it's interesting what God gives to them. God gives them the law. Have you ever wondered about this timing? 430 years pass from the promise to Abraham to the giving of the law. The law doesn't change the promise, but it is interesting that the law is not given until the Israelites leave slavery in Egypt. I think at least in part... It's because that there is power that accompanies freedom. And freedom, at least sometimes, makes us feel like we have more power. What are some of the sources of power? I want you to pause for a few moments. I want you to actually think the kind of power that you have. There's some power that comes simply by strength. The biggest kid on the playground has power whether that kid be a bully or a kind, gentle giant. By virtue of that child's size or strength, there is some power that's associated with that. Power comes with position. Whether it be position in a classroom, as teacher has a certain level of power, position within a family unit, position at work. Many of you here have some title at the place where you work, and there is a certain amount of power that comes with that position. Certainly resources bring power. To have resources or to control resources gives you a level of power that others who don't have those resources don't have. And I know that money can be considered a resource, but let's put that in a different category. The economic power that comes with monetary wealth, there's power associated with that. How does that power get used? Without a doubt, knowledge is power. whether it's knowledge intentionally acquired or knowledge that simply comes as a result of living life. 
knowledge carries with it a significant amount of power. Geographic location carries with it power. But even those people who feel like none of those things apply to you, and that wouldn't be anyone in this room because most of those apply to most of you in this room. But there are other internal pieces of power that are incredibly strong. Commitment, a resolved and settled value system, the um, choice inwardly to stay a course. There is power in that internal mechanism that holds you steady. The inability to be persuaded by weak arguments. There's power there. So why am I asking this over and over again? I want you to think about the power you have and how you use it. Because the drive within all of us is to use power for our own purposes, to advance our own causes, to serve our own needs. It just comes with the territory. And that's the reason why we enact laws to limit the use and abuse of power. So the Israelites have freedom. Freedom to live as they choose, to pursue as they choose, whatever it is they want to choose. It doesn't appear to me that there's any coincidence that at that time, God gives the law. The law because they didn't need the law as slaves, Everything was dictated for them, but now they have freedom. With freedom comes power. With power comes the potential to abuse power. And God, in an attempt to set parameters so that power doesn't get abused in the ways that would destroy the very community that he set free, passes along laws to help them in the midst of their community so that power is at least limited in some ways. But all of the law can be wrapped up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. We just heard that read in Galatians chapter 5. I believe it was verse 14. The law is summed up in this. So God gives to Moses to give to the people. Of the big ten, the four laws, the four commandments that teach us how to better love God. The six commandments that help us to know how to love our neighbor better. And then we have it expanded in so many directions. How we eat, issues of health, how we interact with one another, how we engage in worship, <clears throat> the boundaries that are set between individuals, the way we respect those boundaries, and the laws multiply and multiply in an attempt to set limits on the ways in which power gets used. The disciples struggled with this very issue. One of the other readings for today is Luke chapter 9. In this passage, we hear some amazing things that were happening in front of the disciples. The beginning of the chapter, they were sent out two by two, and they were given amazing power, power to do incredible things. There were some limitations. They recognized some of those limitations. But they never experienced anything like this before. And then hanging out with Jesus, some other things happened. 
a multitude of 5,000 men plus women plus children were fed by a miraculous feeding. Healings took place. Peter, James, and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus transformed and there saw Moses and Elijah. In the midst of all of this, Jesus says toward the end of this chapter that he set his mind resolutely to go to Jerusalem. And so he sends an envoy ahead of him. They go through Samaria to prepare the way, and there were some people that were incredibly inhospitable. James and John, two of the disciples, decide they would like to handle it their way. Now that they have power and know that they can use it, they say to Jesus, so, why don't we just call down fire from heaven and destroy them all? I didn't make that up. That's what they said. They had this newfound power in Christ. We've seen it happen. We've watched the feeding. We've seen the healings. You sent us out two by two. They're in our way. We're heading to Jerusalem. Let's take care of this matter and take care of it quickly. Jesus' response, very short, not too many details. It simply says, and Jesus rebuked them. They didn't understand it yet. How power is to be used. So in the midst of this, my mind races off to... uh, the wonderful ways in which I love music. I am not a musician, but I'm married to one. I love good music. I've not dedicated the effort to learn what I need to learn to be up here to sing with these two guys or to be part of a praise band or to let anybody actually hear me sing He's Able while I'm skiing. That's the only place that I really ought to be singing that is when the engine noise drowns me out. When you're learning music, an instrument singing as part of a choir, playing a keyboard or woodwind or brass instrument, there's so much to learn. You go through classes, you learn your scales, you learn the boundaries, you learn the way in which the fingering happens on a trumpet or how your left hand is supposed to be doing something so much different than the right hand on the keyboard. It's a process of Maybe you don't even know that it's music theory, but learning all of the details of music theory. You've been to recitals, many of you have been, where students got the piece of music in front of him or her, and it is just this constant up and down, looking at the notes and the fingers, trying to make sure that it's done right and according to the rules of the music. It's beautiful to see, not so much because the music is gorgeous, but because you know where it leads. It's not intended to be the end of the process. In fact, it's the very thing that helps you get to that process, to the destination of the process. The contrast when you listen to someone who has learned theory so incredibly well, has internalized it, it somehow fades into that second nature 
and they're playing a piece, and you just know they have taken off on something that they're hearing that probably wasn't even part of the written notes, but they hear something about the harmony or the rhythm or something that they know is going to be such a compliment. And for those of us who get to listen in onto that maybe improvisation, or maybe they are the notes that are written, but somehow the heart of the musician has come through so that it is more than the sum of the parts. It is this, it is this glorious moment when the music allows a soul to reach a soul. And it's no longer a concern about all of the music theory of what was the particular number of beats per measure or what key we're in or were these parallel fifths or not or should they have even been that. All of the sudden it's the music the way music was intended to be. Paul, I believe, is saying something very similar in this book this letter called Galatians. He is saying to the people, I brought to you a gospel that speaks about what God's Spirit does in us and for us. It's freedom. And the Galatians had lost their joy. He says it in Galatians. What happened to the joy you once had? You've now returned to the letter of the law as if somehow by keeping the letter of the law you are living the life you were intended to live. That's missing the whole point. The law is there simply to point you toward life in its fullest. The law by itself is so inadequate it leads to comparisons. It leads to a sense of self-righteousness or self-loathing. But it doesn't lead to freedom and hope. It's interesting what Jesus says. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's another source of power. It's the one I want you to dwell on this morning. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So what's the law that needs to be in place to help us deal with the power of the Holy Spirit? It's very simply this. Love. That's the law of the Spirit that keeps the most powerful of all things in its proper place. It's what James and John had not yet figured out. But it's the calling of Christ, greater love hath no person than that he or she might lay down his or her life for a friend. <coughs> That's what I was describing when I was talking to the couples up here. A covenant of laying down your life for someone you've chosen to live a life with. For those who have chosen to be married, to love and to cherish, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death. It's a covenant commitment. Incredibly difficult to do. Discipleship, there's a price there. 
Grace is free. Discipleship? Wow. Hang on to your hats. This is something else. This is an adventure. An adventure with all kinds of grace poured in because we need grace. God, I'm going to stumble 500 times. And God says, yeah, I know. Isn't that amazing? Keep going. That's what grace is all about. God, this is hard. Paul says to some of them, you've gone back to the letter of the law to avoid persecution. He doesn't expand on it, but I just feel like Paul is saying, if you understood that persecution is the greatest time to live out your faith because it has the greatest influence in those moments. And at the end of that is amazing joy. Paul had lived through it. He knew what he was talking about. The adventure of discipleship to be called into this place where for someone you've chosen to live a life with, for a child you've chosen to bring into the world, for a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, to love and to lay down your life as an expression of that love. That's the only law of the Spirit. And when the Spirit empowers, oh my goodness. Are you ready for that? We're not if we're still living in the realm of the law. Where we're comparing, contrasting, using power in a way that helps us to get ahead. So I ask you again, what do you have in your journey where power has been entrusted to you? You are offered God's Spirit. But we will be forever stuck in living far beneath what God intended us to live if we live merely by the law. Paul says, that's no gospel at all. In fact, it's the only time in Scripture where it's said, and if you do so, you've fallen from grace. You've turned your back on the purpose of grace. Galatians 5.4 If this is the direction of your journey, grace is of no use to you. Hmm. But if you want the adventure of living into that fullness, it's all grace on God's part. And oh Lord, help me to follow with all of who I am in love on my part. Then, then, my outlook begins to change. I begin to see with God's eyes the things that were right in front of me where I can live out that life of love. I have a new heart, a new set of ears. The Spirit's empowerment pushes me in ways that I never thought possible. Not to call down fire from heaven. Oh, Jesus was so gracious. He just simply rebukes them. You'll get it soon. Keep following me. Let's do this together. Let's do this together. Thank you.